0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 84b, Into the Tomb. Today, we are looking at the hidden monument of Amun-hotep II, which was the scene of a remarkable discovery during the heyday of early Egyptology. In a dual narrative, we explore the construction of this tomb in parallel with its discovery, and we'll see how the Egyptians of the past created a royal monument, and how the Egyptians of the modern age stumbled across it. This episode is brought to you by Dave Yuanchuk, Bob Nicholson, and Martin Collier. Thank you so much for your generous support, folks. May Thoth bring you wisdom and guide your footsteps on the path of life. To all my listeners, please enjoy the show. This episode is a long one and kind of atmospheric, so I'm going to front load the advertisement now in order to get it out of the way. The show might best be enjoyed in a darkened room with some kind of candles burning. But anyway, let's
1: get on with it. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such Grey History, the French Revolution. Is a long form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, gray history dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, the French Revolution today. Or simply search for the French Revolution.
0: The year was 1440 B.C.E. It was early in the reign of Amunhotep II, and the recently crowned king had formally requested that work begin on his royal tomb. Selecting an architect, the king described what he wanted. His servant then put this into practice. The architect of Amunhotep II was a man named Ka. Ka, or Appearing in Splendor, was a middle-class Egyptian of the scribal profession. He was educated, moderately wealthy, and worked as part of the government. He designed buildings and oversaw construction. Now, after climbing the career ladder, his great moment had come at last. One day, Ka sat down with papyrus and pen to begin sketching the idea for the tomb. Remarkably, we have some evidence for what a sketch of this kind might look like. Thanks to a surviving papyrus from a couple of centuries later, we have an idea how Carr might have drawn his plan. I will do my best to describe this concept in words, but as always, there are some beautiful pictures on the podcast website. Link in the episode's description. To begin with, Carr took his papyrus and, at the far left edge, drew a rectangle. This would be the burial chamber, the innermost part of the tomb, and the best place to start if he did not want to run out of space on his page. Within this rectangle, he drew a small, semi-oval shape. This was the king's sarcophagus. He also drew a number of tiny squares, which were columns to support the roof. A simple layout, but an important beginning. From this basic element, Carr added a corridor, another rectangular chamber, some more corridors, and finally the entrance. With the basic layout complete, he began to add more details. Each room was given a small caption stating the width and the length in Egyptian cubits. The drawing itself was not to scale, but each chamber and corridor was given its intended measurements. This way, the general structure could be planned on paper, while still retaining a bit of flexibility in execution. If the bedrock proved to be too hard for instance, or work proceeded more slowly than expected, a corridor might be shortened, or a room shrunk slightly. But, in its basic shape, the tomb was there for all to see. Kar sat back with a smile, put down his pen, and sprinkled some sand on the papyrus to dry the ink. He then took his diagram to the pharaoh, displaying his work. Amunhotep nodded, satisfied, and approved that the project could begin. From here, it was simply a matter of turning a vision into a reality. All they needed was a location. For the tomb of Amunhotep II, Ka chose a spot due west of the monument built for the pharaoh's father the III, in a secluded corner of the Valley of the Kings, which was still relatively empty at this time. Ka chose a spot for the entrance to Amunhotep's tomb. Soon after this, workmen began to arrive on site, ready to begin carving. Copper chisels and wooden mallets in hand, they approached the cliff face, and began to hammer out the shape of the royal tomb. As they did this, the architect Carr watched his vision begin to take shape. We will meet these builders and see their methods in a moment. First, there is a second element of this story that we need to tell three and a half thousand years after work began on the royal tomb, another learned man was standing in the Valley of the Kings, watching a team of labourers at work. Like the ancient Egyptians, these modern men were digging away at the sand, the rubble, and the soil of the Valley of the Kings. Unlike their predecessors, these men came not to build, but to find. In 1898 CE, early March, Excavators had honed in on what seemed to be a previously undiscovered tomb in the valley. Excitement was in the air. This would be the second great find of the season. A couple of months earlier, the team had discovered the tomb of King Tutmos III. That was a remarkable find, even though they knew that the king himself was buried in a cache out in Deir el Bahari. The king's body had been found many years earlier, so when they stumbled on the tomb of King Tutmos III, they knew that it was empty. Now, the diggers were hoping that their next find might prove more fruitful. The team was hard at work, excited for the possibilities ahead, but none were more excited than their leader, a man named Victor Loret. Victor Loret was born in Paris in 1861. He studied at the Sorbonne, and later taught at Lyon as professor of Egyptology. In 1897, Monsieur Loret was appointed as Director General of the Egyptian Antiquities Service, and he made his way to the Valley of the Kings to begin exploring. This is how, in May 1898, Loret found himself standing before the doorway of the tomb of Amunhotep II. The workers opened it, and a dark passage loomed before him. The professor was excited. This would surely be a wonderful discovery. Candle in hand, Monsieur Loret made his way into the darkness. In 1440, Carr and his workers were excavating the tunnels of the king's tomb. The work of channeling out bedrock to create passages would take many years. With only copper chisels, wooden mallets, and flickering lamps to light the way, work proceeded slowly but it proceeded steadily as well. With rain being an unlikely event, the workmen could hammer away day after day without stopping for unruly weather. So, over the course of about five or six years, the workmen chiseled away, and the structure began to take shape. Carr probably divided his workers into two teams. According to later records, the tomb builders were organised according to which side of the tomb they worked on each day. On the left there was the Sa Iabet, meaning Team of the East, or Team of the Left. On the right there was the Sa Imenti, or Team of the West, aka the Team on the Right. Each gang worked on one side of the tomb, and they were watched over by their own foreman. Organised like this, the builders would always know where to be, and any praises, or punishments, could be given out correctly. It was a straightforward system, and it allowed the job to go ahead smoothly. Building work in these tombs started slowly, but it began to accelerate as time went on. The first phase you see, a doorway and a long corridor, was limited by the narrow size of the space itself. Just three or four men at most would have to chisel away at the rock in order to make any kind of depth. As long as the work was confined in such a narrow space, the tomb advanced slowly. But as the diggers got further in, other workers could begin to come in behind them. This second group went to work on the rough walls. They smoothed out the irregularities and shaped the corridor into a proper four-sided edifice. This meant that the further underground the tomb went, the more space slowly opened up for men to work in. When the corridors ended and builders began to chisel out entire rooms, well, the work proceeded even faster. Each room is several times wider than the corridors, so several times as many men could work side by side in the space. The result was that construction advanced in fits and starts. Every corridor took an eternity to construct. Every room was much quicker. Whether Carr himself came down every day, or simply checked in periodically, is unclear. We know that high officials like the royal vizier would come down every month or so in order to inspect the progress. But with work continuing so slowly on a daily basis, it probably wasn't necessary for Carr or many people of high status to be there at any one time. Chances are there were entire weeks or months where work simply proceeded in quiet and nobody bothered the tomb workers. So, the months turned into years, and the tomb builders chiseled away into the dark. In 1898, Victor Loret was making his way down the same corridors built so many centuries ago. He was advancing warily, taking great care in the darkness. Caution was sensible, because before too long Loret found himself at the edge of a deep, black pit. A square shaft descended straight down to an unknown depth, and had he been less cautious, Loret could easily have tumbled down into it. A broken bone, or worse, would have been his fate. The tomb of Amunhotep II, like that of Tutmos III, had a large pit dug at the end of the first corridor. We presume that these well shafts were intended to catch any flooding or groundwater, but there's no certainty of that. They could equally have provided a symbolic burial chamber for Osiris, one where the great god could descend to his realm. All we know for sure is, the chambers were deep and they were dark. All Lorraine knew was that, with luck, crossing this shaft would lead to the burial chamber. There is a delightful sketch of the Egyptologist stumbling on the edge of this well. It is contemporary with the discovery, and shows a reimagined view of Loret all but falling down into the cavern. He clutches at a stone wall for support, while rocks tumble down dramatically into the depths. It is an evocative scene, you will find the image on the podcast website. I recommend checking it out. Luray had his Egyptian assistants fetch a ladder he laid it over the shaft of the well, and carried on into the tomb. The discovery was seeming more exciting by the moment. What would he find within? Loray was now far from the world of the living. Having passed the well shaft, he was in the tomb proper. Specifically, he had entered the antechamber. But in a symbolic sense, he had now left the realm of the living, and was into the realm of the dead. This transition was confirmed rather suddenly, when Loret's candlelight played on something in the darkness. Something horrifying. Quote, I went forward with my candle, and, horrible sight, a body lay there upon a boat. It was all black and hideous. Its grimacing face turned towards me, and looking at me. Its long brown hair was in sparse bunches around its head. The legs and arms seemed to be bound. A hole was exposed in the sternum, and there was an opening in the skull. Was this a victim of a human sacrifice? Was this a thief murdered by his accomplices in a bloody division of the loot, or perhaps he was killed by soldiers or police interrupting the pillaging of the tomb? Loret had entered the tomb of Amunhotep and stumbled across a terrifying sight. An ancient corpse lying in a boat, its necrotic face turned towards the archaeologist. Loret soon realised what had happened. A mummy, laid against the wall of the first chamber, had been damaged by looters. It had been rummaged and pillaged, and in the disorder, had become twisted. Harmless enough, but spooky to come across in the darkness. The mummy, over which the Egyptologist all but tripped, was not the mummy of the king Amunhotep. It was a later addition, a reburied corpse laid down here about four hundred years after Amenhotep the Second died. To this day, the mummy remains only tentatively identified, but you can see an image of the mummy in situ on the podcast website. It is an eerie sight. Loret examined the deformed corpse, satisfied himself that it was merely a damaged mummy, and then carried on into the chamber. He was now in the room that we commonly know as the antechamber. It was a rectangular room, oriented north to south, with two columns in the center. In antiquity, the antechamber was used to store various items like furniture, weapons, shabti figurines, and any portable shrines that the burial might include. Of course, time and grave robbers had stripped the room of most of its items, but there were a few things to find. In the antechamber of Amunhotep II, Victor Loret and his team found such wonderful things as a miniature boat, a bark designed to carry the statue of a god. There was also a large figurine of the goddess Sekhmet made of wood. This was an impressive find in itself. Then in the corner, there was a wooden Shabti figure, an eternal servant made for the afterlife. Curiously, The hieroglyphs on this shabti revealed that it did not belong to the king, but instead to one of the king's sons. This shabti belonged to a prince of Amunhotep named Weben Senu. He was one of the king's eldest children, and in life he had enjoyed an honoured status in the court. What was his shabti doing here? Luray now wondered if the burial chamber might contain the mummy of the prince instead if weben senus shabti was here was it far-fetched to expect that his body was as well monsieur lorray's excitement was now palpable he proceeded towards the burial chamber by 1430 bce Work had been proceeding on the tomb for nearly ten years. Now, Carr travelled up to the Valley of the Kings. He had received good news regarding the tomb. The corridors, well shafts and antechambers were constructed. Work could now begin on the sacred hall itself, the burial chamber of the king. In designing the tomb of a pharaoh, Carr had made a number of important innovations, specifically in how the burial chamber would be constructed and shaped. Firstly, he had abandoned the oval-shaped rooms of previous kings, and made the hall a strict rectangle. Then, he had added six columns to support the roof, and to provide more decoration space. Finally, he had made his most important change. The tomb of Amunhotep II was the first royal tomb to be given a multi-level effect in the floor of the burial chamber. As you walk into the hall you are actually standing on a sort of mezzanine, which takes up about two-thirds of the floor space. But in the very centre of the room, between the six columns, a stairway has been cut into the floor. This stairway descends to a new, sunken area, where the actual sarcophagus of the king is located. What's more, the sarcophagus itself sits within a small rectangular pit, dug slightly down into the floor. So as you approach the king's coffin, one has the feeling of going down, down and down. Basically, the whole thing is a sort of mid-70s split-level arrangement. I wonder how Carr the Architect proposed that particular innovation. If I had to guess, i like to imagine it going like this. What is this about? I'm completely changing the configuration of the apartment. You're not going to believe it when you see it. Whole new lifestyle. (laughs) What are you doing? Levels. (laughs) Levels. <laughs> levels? Yeah, I'm getting rid of all my furniture. All of it. And I'm going to build these different levels. You know, with steps. And it'll all be carpeted. With a lot of pillows. You know, like ancient Egypt. Hmm. You drew up plans for this? No. No, it's all in my head. For some reason, Amunhotep II approved Ka's strange idea. And in the process, they set in motion a change or trend that was going to persist for centuries after this time. But the improvements to the royal tomb were not finished just yet. Previous kings had used architecture as a backdrop for the all-important decorations. It was the hieroglyphic texts and images which emphasised the essential religious ideas of the tomb. Now, the architect ka had changed things up. Compared with older tombs, Ka had made the whole underworld symbolism a lot more literal. Instead of relying on images, he had worked the idea of the king's journey into the very structure of the burial chamber itself. Just as Amun-hotep and the sun god Ray would go beneath the horizon, so too would the king's body go down, literally, into a sunken pit. It is an almost perfect crystallization of everything that the pharaoh's tomb stood for. Carr's design is simply phenomenal. On top of that, it was incredibly influential, and tomb builders used this kind of structure and plan for many generations to come. Under Carr's watch, the laborers worked in the burial chamber for years. Day by day, stonemasons trooped into the hall, took up their space, and began to carve the bedrock. Painstaking effort, hour by hour, day by day, hammering, chiseling, hammering, chiseling. It was a tedious and unhealthy environment. Working in cramped space, and in dim lighting, the men would eventually suffer ailments, like strained eyesight, or arthritis and bone deformities. Simply put, it was a punishing lifestyle, and I do not envy them. But, by God, their work is amazing. The decoration of Amunhotep's burial chamber is astounding. Its walls sport a complete rendition of the Amduat, the nightly journey of Rey in the underworld. The chapters of this text are painted as if they're on papyrus paper, stick figures on a yellow background. The walls appear like a giant unrolled book, ready to be surveyed and read by the soul of the king. As you read the chapters, you experience the journey of the king, and of Rei through the eternal realms of the night. It is a fascinating work. I doubt that Ka had too much to do with the decoration used in the Amduat. That sort of material was well established by the priestly canons of the day, and it didn't require much interpretation to paint. Simply take the guidebook, copy it onto the walls, done. One change that Ka did get to make was on the decoration of the columns. The pillars in Amunhotep's burial chamber depict the king before various gods, Anubis, Osiris, Hathor, deities associated with the west and with caring for the dead. The king stands before the gods, usually giving them offerings and receiving life in return. Now, what's interesting about these pictures is how the actual style of painting has changed, In previous tombs, artistic features like this would be drawn in stick figure, reflecting the idea that they were almost papyrus paper drawings. Carr now changed this, and turned them from stick figures into more of a fleshed out outline. The characters on these pillars have a lot more mass than the stick figures in other tombs. They almost look like outlines that are waiting for someone to colour them in. Now this may not seem like a big deal but it was an important step on the road from hieratic stick figures to the lush painted people we see in later monuments. Now, maybe that doesn't seem like such a big deal, but it is one of those rare moments where we can see the ancients taking a step that will lead to much bigger changes down the road. Carr's work here is a marker of the evolution of pharaonic tomb art, kind of a missing link between older and later styles. Of course, all of this was done not for artistic pleasure, but for a greater purpose. The burial chamber of the king was elaborate, ornate, and beautiful, but its function was far more direct. In this sacred hall, at the bottom of the central staircase, the king's sarcophagus was made ready for the burial. It was here, in this private sanctum, that Amunhotep hotep would one day rest. In 1898, Victor Loret was standing in the antechamber of the tomb. He had just stumbled over an abandoned mummy, and a Shabti figure of a prince named Weben Senu. This raised some doubts in the archaeologist's mind. Was he actually in a royal tomb, or had he simply stumbled upon a lesser monument, one devoted to an ancient prince? He headed for the burial chamber, scarcely daring to hope. Monsieur Loret went down the staircase towards the sepulchre. At the bottom, the doorway opened into blackness, almost swallowing his candlelight. He advanced, and his light grew greater. With stupefaction, Monsieur Loret saw an immense hall, entirely decorated. It was held up by rows of pillars, on which were painted life-size groups of a king in the presence of gods. Reading the cartouches, Loret was now convinced. It was really him, Amun-Hotep II. There was no more doubt. This was the son of the III. Loret was in luck. He was now the proud discoverer of two generations of pharaohs, the tomb of the III and that of Amun-Hotep II. Even more luckily, he had discovered them both in a single season. So Loret must have been terribly excited at this point the only question was, would he find the royal mummy? The body of Thutmose III had been discovered years before in the royal cache of Deir al Bahari. There, more than 50 kings, queens, princes and princesses had been collected and reburied by priests centuries after the fact. Thutmose III, like great rulers such as Ramesses II or Sekenenre Tao, had been hidden away in a huge collection. That meant that when he found Thutmose's tomb, Victor Loret was finding an empty sepulchre. But the dear el bahri cache had not contained the mummy of Amunhotep II, which meant that there was a good chance his body was still in situ. Would Loret find the king resting here in the burial chamber, or would he be crushed by disappointment? Perhaps the king's body had been removed to another cache, or even destroyed by tomb robbers. Perhaps this burial chamber was empty after all. There was only one way to find out. Loret proceeded down the stairs, his candle sending shadows around the chamber. The floor was littered with debris, fragments of wood, pottery, stone vessels. There were shabti figurines, ankh symbols made of faience, even a stone head that had originally belonged to the king's canopic jars. There was a miniature statue of Horus, arms raised in the act of baptizing or purifying the pharaoh on the day of his coronation. There were small jed pillars, symbols of Osiris representing eternity. There were also Was scepters, which were both a hieroglyph meaning dominion, and a short form of the name wasset, aka the city of Thebes. Remarkably, there was also a small pot made entirely of glass. I haven't got to talk about ancient glass much, but it's a surprisingly cool subject. I'm studying it at the moment, just for fun, and I'm hoping to share it with you down the line. The reign of Amunhotep II is one of the first times that proper glassmaking appears in the Egyptian record. So yeah, there's a fact of the day. Anyway, Loret sifted his way through this debris. He took his time, careful lest he should break anything but surely he did this with more than a little impatience. While he gingerly made his way through rubble and scrap, the sarcophagus of the king was just ahead of him. If he could but reach it, he would see inside. Would he be lucky? Would the pharaoh lie within? At long last, the moment came. Loray reached the sarcophagus. Unfortunately, it was open, which meant that robbers must have got at it in the past. There was a good chance that they had destroyed the pharaoh's body in a search for treasure. Scarcely daring to hope, Loret looked within. The sarcophagus was open, but was it empty? I did not dare to hope for the contrary, because royal mummies had never been found in the necropolis of the valley. I could partially read the cartouches of Amunhotep II. I leant over the edge, bringing the light a little nearer, and then, pause for effect, Victory! A dark coffin lay in the bottom of the sarcophagus, its head having a bunch of flowers, and a wreath around its feet. End quote. The mummy of Amun-hotep was intact. The king was at his rest. What a win! Loret was now the first Egyptologist to discover a royal mummy undisturbed in its original tomb. Twenty years before Howard Carter stumbled on Tutankhamun, Loret was the proud finder of an even greater king. The pharaoh Akkeperure Amunhotep II was lying still in his eternal slumber. This tomb was now a treasure unlike any before. Amunhotep lay in a coffin made later on in history. At some point, priests from Thebes had rewrapped his mummy, placed it within a new coffin, and covered it in a shroud. This would have been a response to tomb robberies, and an attempt to preserve the pharaoh more effectively. Apparently it had worked, for here the king lay. Oh sure, there were a couple of small cuts in the shroud, where later robbers had tried to get in, but overall it was very much intact. It seems as though the pharaoh had lain there undisturbed since the day he died. Can you imagine the excitement Monsieur Loret must have felt at this moment? He is very composed in his narrative, but I think we can assume that his heart was beating rapidly, and he could scarcely contain his joy. Which seems paradoxical, because 3,500 years earlier, this chamber had been filled with mourning. In 1418 BCE, King Amunhotep II passed away. At 44 years old, the king's soul left the mortal realm and went to join his ancestors. On earth, his family and friends mourned, and priests took his body away for mummification. Seventy days later, the funeral of the pharaoh took place. As they laid him into the tomb, the royal family, the priests, and the attendants formally ended the reign of the great king. They sealed him into his sarcophagus, and withdrew silently, out, swept the floor clean, obliterating any footprints. From there, Amunhotep slumbered, peacefully, in his sarcophagus. The power of this burial continued to resonate for millennia. 3,300 years later, the tomb's discoverer, Victor Loret, had found Amunhotep in setu. Some time after this, the Egyptologist Mary Broderick viewed Amunhotep's mummy within its sarcophagus. She found herself moved by the sight, and she described her thoughts for us to read. Quote, Absolute silence is all around, a silence that may be felt. A feeling of awe steals over one, as it is realised that here, lying in his lonely coffin, far away from the haunts of man, beast or bird, is the shrouded, silent form of the monarch, whose word alone was sufficient to make the world tremble. End quote. Nowadays, the mummy of the king is in Cairo, but his sarcophagus remains within the tomb. That sarcophagus is a gorgeous work. It is made of quartzite, but painted brown to mimic the stone granite. I wonder why they didn't just make it out of actual granite, but who am I to question these people? The container was shaped like a royal cartouche, flat at one end, round at the other. It is decorated with hieroglyphs painted yellow to resemble gold. On one end, the goddess Isis appears with golden skin and blue hair. She kneels atop the hieroglyph Nebu, meaning gold. So, golden hieroglyphs, golden goddess, golden symbols. Amunhotep had made his point. In 1898, Victor Loret was standing beside that golden painted container, looking down on the face of a pharaoh. Monsieur Loret was overjoyed at this discovery, of course, but even the body of a king cannot hold your attention forever. The Egyptologist soon turned his eye to the rest of the burial chamber. The great discovery was achieved, now it was time to get back to work. Loret looked around, his candlelight playing over the walls. Above him, on the upper level, the pillars were decorated with images of Amun-hotep standing before the great gods. Figures like Hathor, Anubis, and Osiris stared down at the Frenchman. He was in the company of great and powerful beings. In the shadows and flickering light, they must have seemed all but alive. I would not judge any man for experiencing a brief shiver down their spine at the sight. Brushing aside his as concerns, Loret now turned to the rest of the chamber. The mummy of the king was here, safe and secure. The burial goods were, it seemed, in pieces all over the floor. Canopic jars and statues were visible. Now those would be collected and reassembled, but it did seem as though the tomb was a rich find indeed. Little did Loret know, the revelations had only just begun. Looking at the burial goods, the canopic jars and figurines on the floor, Lorraine now realised that something was a little bit wrong. Burial goods like these would normally be placed in small side chambers. They wouldn't just be scattered around the floor of the sepulchre itself. It was with this that Lorraine looked to the walls. He now noticed that there were a number of small doorways arrayed along the two long walls of the burial chamber. At first, these seemed normal. Similar rooms had appeared in royal tombs before, and, usually, this was where the burial goods were kept. But something was different. You see, one of these doorways was sealed. To the right of the burial chamber, about halfway up the wall, a small square doorway had been blocked up with stones. Suspecting some kind of treasure trove, Loret and his colleague removed this blockage. They shone their candles in and inside, they saw something remarkable. Coffins. In a side room of the tomb of Amunhotep II, nine wooden coffins had been placed in orderly rows. To one side, a pile of debris indicated where the king's original funerary goods had been hastily shoved aside, to make way for new bodies. So, this clearly came after the original burial. Was this a cache of Amunhotep's family? Monsieur Loret recorded his find. Quote, the coffins and the mummies were a uniform grey color. I leaned over the nearest coffin and blew on it so as to read the name. The grey tint was in fact a layer of dust, which flew away and allow me to read the name. The name was Ramesses the Fourth. Was I in a cache of royal coffins? I blew away the dust of the second coffin, and a cartouche revealed itself as well, Ramesses the sixth, illegible for an instant, painted in matte black on a shiny black ground. I went over to the other coffins. There I saw names like Seti, Merenta, another Amunhotep, Atatmos, Ramesses V, Sipta. Everywhere there were cartouches. End quote. Victor Loret in eighteen ninety eight Stumbled on one of the all time great Egyptological finds. He had found the second cache of royal mummies, the bodies of great rulers that had been hidden away in later antiquity. This was a plethora of august individuals, great pharaohs in their own time, whose precious burials had been damaged by tomb robberies. To protect the holy remains, priests had removed the mummies, re wrapped and documented them, and placed them into the tomb of Amunhotep. They had sealed them away in a side chamber, a last-ditch effort to secure the mummies against any further disruption. Their efforts had worked. For 3300 years, the great rulers of the past had lain undisturbed. Now, they were being rediscovered. Loret had made one of those once-in-a-lifetime finds, the sort that an Egyptologist only daydreams of occasionally or the kind that a savvy sociolite can dine out on for the rest of their lives. But Loret was no dilettante, he was careful, methodical, and attentive in his documentation. If you go to the podcast website, and scroll down to the bottom of this episode, you will see three dark images. These are the original photos taken when Loret and his team discovered the mummy cache in the tomb of Amunhotep II. Obviously, these images are not for the squeamish. Some of the bodies were unwrapped when Loray found them, and you will see them as he saw them. They are ghostly, they are ghastly, but they are fascinating. I recommend a look. Now the cache of royal mummies was an amazing find. Just one small room off of the burial chamber had nearly completed the roster of new kingdom rulers. After 1898, only a few notable names like Tutankhamun remained undiscovered. Remarkably, this tiny room with its nine bodies was not even the last discovery in the tomb of Amunhotep II. Loray now turned his torch to the second of the four storage rooms. This one, just next to the cache of royal mummies, was unsealed, and as the Egyptologist entered it, his candlelight played across another ethereal scene. Quote, entering this chamber. An unusually strange sight met our eyes. Three bodies lay side by side at the back in the left corner, their feet pointing towards the door. The right half of the room was filled with little coffins and mummy-form covers, and funerary statues of resin-painted wood. Statues were contained in the coffins that the thieves had opened and rejected, having searched in vain for treasures." We approached the cadavers. The first seemed to be that of a woman. A thick veil covered her forehead and her left eye. Her broken arm had been replaced at her side. Her nails were in the air. Ragged and torn cloth hardly covered her body. Abundant black hair spread out over the limestone floor on each side of her head. Her face was admirably conserved and had a noble and majestic gravity. End quote. Loray found the bodies of two women and a young man. Now, to this day, the figures are only tentatively identified. There have been genetic studies and attempts to correlate the body's age with various historical figures. But no one is 100% certain that we have the identities right. That being said it is possible that the elder woman, called the Elder Lady, is the mummy of a queen named Tia. Queen Tia was the wife of Amunhotep III, whose body was in the next room over. Queen Tia was an amazingly powerful woman in her day, and we're going to meet her down the line. Remarkably, the second woman, called the Younger Lady, is sometimes identified as the potential mother of King Tutankhamun. Now, this doesn't tell us exactly who she was, because we don't know who Tutankhamun's mother was, historically. But according to genetic studies, this woman bears a motherly relationship with Tutankhamun himself. So that's pretty exciting, and it's ironic that we discovered the king's mother long before his tomb was ever suspected by anyone. Now, I should simply note that some Egyptologists are still hesitant to accept that identity conclusively. But it does seem to be the best guess we have at the moment on the available evidence. So, this mummy cache, these three bodies in here, and the nine bodies in the second room, were truly a find of absolutely remarkable proportions. An entire family lineage was now complete within the historical records. Different figures could be associated with one another, and we could put a face to the ancient names themselves. Truly, Leray was having one of the best days ever. Over the following weeks and months, Monsieur Loret and his team documented and cleared the tomb. Remarkably, after recording the find of Amunhotep's mummy, Victor Loret decided to leave the body of the king in situ. For about three decades after his discovery, Amunhotep II's mummy remained lying within his sarcophagus. This only changed in the late 1920s, when security issues became too great, and the body had to be relocated to the Egyptian museum in Cairo. So, of all the pharaohs of Egypt, Amunhotep II was probably the one who enjoyed the longest undisturbed sleep of any of them. Victor Loret, meanwhile, remained in Egypt for a few more months, before returning to his native France in 1899. There, he continued teaching at Lyon until 1929 when he retired. Finally, in 1946, he passed away at the venerable age of 86. He was almost twice as old as the pharaoh whose tomb he had discovered. Although he is a lesser-known figure of Egyptology today, Victor Loret gained his place in the history books on the back of these discoveries. So, in many ways, The legacy of this Frenchman and the legacy of Amun-hotep II are intertwined, and they remain so today. In 1418 BCE, Amun-hotep II died. But his architect, Ka, continued working for many years. Now we are not done with this man just yet. Over the next few episodes, Kar will pop up repeatedly, as he designs the tombs of first one, and then two more kings of Egypt. By the time his own life came to an end, Kar was one of Egypt's foremost tomb builders, a man to fit the legacy of great architects. We'll see him again very soon. I should also mention that Kar and his tomb is one of the great resources for the village of Deir el-Medina in the 18th dynasty. Deir el Medina, the workmen's village, is one of Egypt's best preserved settlements. Unfortunately, most of what is preserved comes from after the 18th dynasty, so I haven't been able to cover that community in this episode, or in too much detail in this era. Rest assured though, we will see it again soon, and as the generations pass, the village will only gain in prominence. There is some fabulous history on the horizon for Ka and for the tomb builders. And they'll be back before too long. We now come to the end of today's episode. I hope you have enjoyed this little interlude as much as I have writing it. It's not often that I get to tell first-hand accounts, but Lorray's tale is a fascinating one, of early Egyptology and the adventurous discovery of forgotten tombs. This is as close as Egyptology ever gets to old adventure movies. It is the stuff of daydream fantasies. But occasionally, one gets to live the experience first hand. I've done my best to bring that experience to life. On the next episode, we see the immediate aftermath of the death of Amunhotep II. As his body was laid into its tomb, the princes of the court were gathering for a confrontation. The late pharaoh had left no heir. Now, who was going to rule? Join me soon for episode 85, A Clash of Princes, here on the History of Egypt podcast. As always, thank you for listening, I'll see you soon.